So on a practical level, that's, that's what you're saying. Like, yes, everyone wants to talk about the ego, but the death of the transcending and the overcoming that happens in the very spaces we spend most of our lives trying to avoid humiliation, feeling invisible failure, like the very spaces that are the most potential have the most potential for our transformation. We spend our whole lives trying to avoid. That's a dilemma that we all kind of live with, you know? Hello and welcome. You're listening to the podcast where being labeled a heretic is a good thing. We're starting conversations about God, politics, spiritual formation, how we got here, and how we move forward post-evangelicalism. Nothing is off limits in our conversations with scholars, seekers, activists, writers, in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. We are your hosts, Kelly and Gary Allen, and welcome to Holy Heretics. Welcome back to season two of Holy Heretics. This is Gary Allen, your co-host. And one of the spiritual pathways many of us ex-evangelicals are pursuing post-deconstruction is mysticism. The adjective mystical means hidden in Greek, and it points to a more esoteric understanding of divinity or the divine. It's a faith that lives outside the bounds of the literal and the rational, and you might even say uh, the more apologetic-driven certainty that many of us experienced in evangelicalism. Mysticism also describes a process or a journey toward God, not merely a brief moment of ecstasy. And more than a matter of unusual sensations or spooky experiences that you might think, Christian mysticism is essentially an ancient way of knowing based on a transformed state of awareness. Some call it enlightenment. In that state, God becomes present to the mystic not as an object to study in some systematic way, but as the transforming reality of life. Mystics often speak of inner and outer transformation based on direct encounters with God, not just, again, studying about God. And it's a process that involves intentional practice and formative experiences. You might say that these mystical practices like meditation or centering prayer till the soil of your soul, preparing room to encounter the presence of God. Christian mystic Meister Eckhart once wrote, theologians may quarrel, but the mystics of the world speak the same language, and that language is love. Today, we are excited to have an introductory conversation about mysticism and how to begin the process of seeing and being a mystic in the modern world. And to help us do that, we're joined by Kevin Sweeney. Kevin is the co-founder and lead pastor of Imagine Church, an urban church in Honolulu that is welcoming to all people, and they see imagination as the key to the future. Kevin is also the host of the podcast, The Church Needs Therapy, <laughs> which, yes, it does. And he is the author of the forthcoming book, The Making of a Mystic, My Journey with Mushrooms, My Life as a Pastor, and Why It's Okay for Everyone to Relax, which is out May 31st. Kevin lives in Honolulu with his wife, Christine, and their two kiddos. So, Kevin, we are excited to chat with you today about mysticism and meditation and mindfulness and all the M's. So, welcome to the show. Yes, thank you so much. I, I, I love hearing people say the title and this, especially the subtitle to the book. It just makes me so happy whenever I hear that. <laughs> <laughs> so, are you, are you like lounging by the pool right now in a little Hawaiian shirt or are you stuck inside like the rest of us? No, I am in my bedroom on the 37th floor of our building. Wow. Which means the whole bedroom window is like glass. So I'm looking out at a harbor. And if I just perk up a little bit, I can see the ocean on my left. So I am pointed towards that. I'm just looking at blue water and blue sky, not to like rub it in if people are listening from cold places. Oh, you're rubbing you know? it in. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're doing that. Yeah, we hate you, and we're gonna we're gonna yeah. end this conversation right now. Actually, yeah. Well, this has been nice. Have a great day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yeah, no, I'm. Uh, let's see, it's 11:40 here, and uh, did a little drop off of the kids this morning. Did another podcast. My wife actually flew in today from she was in California for a couple of days, and I'm here. And, and I know I said this when we first chatted, but as a first time author, 
all of these podcasts and these connections and the new relationships, you know, I do not take for granted. And I'm so grateful for both of you having me on. And hmm. I just enjoy these times. And they really, really, they mean something to me in this as I'm transitioning in this next chapter of my life. So both of you, thank you so much. Of course. We're excited to talk to you. Absolutely. So we're going to get to sort of all things mystical. But before we nice. get there, um, why don't you share just a little bit about your faith journey and then what led you to to pursue a more mystical version of, of, of faith? Yeah, well, first of all, for anybody who caught that, when Gary Allen said all things mystical, that is a name of another podcast if anyone wants to do it. And I will be one of your first guests too. That's a great <laughs> name. Well, I mean, first, the book shares, you know, some defining moments in my own story. You know, in, in no way is the book an autobiography, but in some parts, it's very autobiographical. So, you know, existential crisis at 17, mushrooms as a spiritual guide for me when I didn't have any, this spontaneous awakening moment with God and a truly a complete rewiring of my consciousness and a reorientation of my life after. So you get the feel for how that happened and what led up to it and also what happened immediately after in my life. But if you zoom out more, my journey began as this radical inward journey. So there was a stepping outside of myself and, you know, seeing myself or my ego for what it was. And when you do that, you are sort of naturally recognizing your own illusions. You're seeing what's driving you. You're seeing the inauthenticity and impossibility of that first half of life ego project where we're trying to create a name for ourselves. So it was me sort of realizing what that was and how it was driving everything. And then once you like, once you start to see through your illusions, you know, all kinds of interesting questions start to arise. It's like all kinds of open space emerges within you that this, it's this open space that's receptive to the incoming or this internal flowing of the divine. So it was unique because from the beginning, my spiritual life was one of subtraction and removal and clearing the way and in transcending illusions. And then that open space created this really fertile environment for this direct, immediate knowing of God that just happened, which I tell that story in the book of that actual awakening moment. But yeah, I think that it was the radical inward journey led me to see what I thought was myself with clarity and to look, really create space for my true self and my transcendent self in Christ to be born out of that. So hmm. I'll go start there. That's a good, well, good way to start. Yeah. Thanks for sharing <laughs> that. Well, we're, I know that you really like the name of your book. So I'm going to say it one more time because we're really excited to talk yes. about it. So you wrote, or you, you have wrote, and soon to be released, The Making of a Mystic, My Journey with Mushrooms, My Life as a Pastor, and Why It's Okay for Everyone to Relax. Yes. And would love to dig into that. So Christian mysticism seems to suddenly be quite popular, um, especially for those in the post-evangelical space. Um, yet it's such an ancient expression of faith. Mm -hmm. I would love to hear your perspective. What is What is Christian mysticism to you, and how could it be a path forward for people? Mm. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, there is the truth of my own story. There is the perennial tradition of mystics historically, but also there is how that stream within this larger river and how that legacy, I believe, has something unique and profound to offer to people who are going through their own journeys of change and transformation of their faith. And, you know, I would start with this to make those connections, there's a difference between spiritual intelligence and spiritual experience. Hmm. And like understanding that. this difference helps provide so much clarity for all kinds of issues right now when it comes to faith and doubt and growth and evolution and change and changing your understanding of God and connection and rethinking and deconstructing and what it means to be awake and to be free. So, you know, in spiritual intelligence is, you know, what you believe about God, but spiritual experience is direct first person experience of God. You know, spiritual intelligence is like the thoughts, ideas, and concepts and current understanding of who God is for us. But spiritual experience is the connection 
and the mm-hmm. union and the experiential knowing of God. Like one is about knowing things about God. The other one is this deep experience of being known by God. And, you know, for people who are familiar with those terms, spiritual intelligence is about growing up and spiritual experience is about waking up. Mm-hmm. And I, to me, understanding the difference between those is so helpful because you know, a transform for me, a transformative faith is not primarily about believing what is right. It's about tasting what is good. Mm-hmm. It's not wow. just getting new ideas that tra- where that help translate the world for you differently, but it's a transforming of the very seat or the very depth of consciousness itself. So the reason why I think that's so helpful for people who are going through so many changes and rethinking their understanding of Jesus and rethinking their understanding of God and re-relating to the church in a new way is you recognize the difference between Christ and Christianity, between your beliefs and your experience of God, between what you think and what it means to actually be known and held together. Because when you see that, it's like, well, you can reimagine, rethink and allow any of your understanding of God to change while at the same time experiencing the depth of love and God within you and as you and through you. Like your understanding of God is evolving. That's fantastic and that's scary. But this this is what I would tell people who are going through that, you know, you can be less certain and more free. Mm. Yeah. Sometimes we, it feels like I'm losing my understanding of God. Feels like I'm losing God. No, you're changing in how you see God, which actually opens you up to experience God as spirit and as transformative encounter more because you're no longer holding on to your beliefs. And when you no longer are holding on to anything, you have this open space to be held together by everything. To me, that's an important phrase. You can be less certain and more free. And I really believe that. I think a lot of people need to hear that for sure. I think for our listeners, I would love to hear your, I mean, all all of that's beautiful. I would love to hear how you got into mysticism. Maybe some of the key people that um, either people of old or or people in your life that kind of clocked you into this, mm-hmm. this concept. Yeah, there was, you know, I was going to tell this story even with the whole less certain, more free, and then... Uh, I want to talk about, you know, what you just asked, but I told the story in the intro to the book where I was, I think I was like 24 at the time and I was going through a walk in my neighborhood in Orange County where I lived for a while. And I was like smoking a black and mild, which for those of you who don't know, they're like really cheap cigars with wooden tips on there, which for me, <laughs> when I was younger, smoking black and milds was like nostalgic because I started smoking when I was so young that when I stopped and started to get clean, like every once in a while I would smoke that just because I liked smoking because I grew up smoking since I was a kid. So I'm walking around the neighborhood smoking this black and mild, just contemplative, open, not rushed, not the next thing. I'm here and this is it. And as I was walking, I had this, this funny dialogue emerged within me where the first voice said, you know, it's one of those moments where you just know. And then a second voice said, no, what? (laughs) And then the first voice said, I don't know, but you just do. And that for me captures that tension between spiritual intelligence and spiritual experience. Because I'm saying, well, you just know. And then the rational mind, the rational mind that wants to be able to understand everything and master everything and control everything and be certain of everything says, no, what? Then this other self says, I don't know. It's like, I don't know with certainty the shape of God. I don't know exactly what it means to hold together a particular version of God. That's always dynamic and flowing. But when I say you just know, that is a relational being known. Like the mystic knows seeing is not primarily about seeing, it's about being seen. And knowing is not primarily about knowing, it's about being known. And I could go on and on. So I think that helps capture that. And the people in my life, like, you know, I could talk about later on in life, the mystics who have had the biggest influence on me. But when I was young, this was all starting to happen to me when and I didn't know anything about it. Like, I had no guides. I knew nothing of evangelical culture 
until I was, I don't know, like 18, 19, 20 for the most part. Like I didn't know about youth groups. I didn't Mm -hmm. know people read their Bibles. I didn't know about conferences that I hear of or all the stuff evangelicals talk about growing up that traumatized them and also created a good experience in them. Mm -hmm. I didn't know about those things. So my journey was, you know, when I'm 17 or 18 and I feel like I'm getting closer to the truth. I feel like I'm pursuing and being pursued. I feel like I'm on the edge of the secret of the universe, but I don't know. But because I was, I got high for so long and because I did enough drugs at that time, I was like, or I'm becoming unhinged from reality and I could be wrong about all this and I could just be fooling myself. But deep down, there was something within me that was like, you know what you're doing and you know where you're going and you know what's happening and you just have to trust that. Like my authority was the authorizing presence of the spirit within me as the deepest voice within me guiding me from the beginning. You know, that for me, that was the interest where I, I didn't have guides and pastors. I had that and that no, that internal knowing and trusting of your own voice was the only compass I had at that point. So early on, I didn't have that. It would have been, there would have been some nice things about having those kinds of guys. I just didn't really have it when I was at that age. So your story sounds almost the exact opposite for uh, at least myself and probably a lot of our listeners who grew up in evangelicalism and um, we grew up in this apologetics movement where reason and you know figuring out your faith to the nth degree and proving mm-hmm. certainty and and what happened was we have now developed an entire generation of Christians and post-evangelicals who have only known faith through the mm. uh, through the mind and through the rational, and it, it sure does feel like that. I'm not saying that those things aren't important. I I, mm-hmm. I really appreciate the fact that you know I spent time doing worldview studies and and things like that. And yet, there's also a moment where you have to grow beyond those. And, and I guess. Mm. Maybe a question would be, how then do you, who seem to sort of skip that part um, and went straight, <laughs> and you know, you went straight to the mystical. Many of us, including myself, had to go through and get to the end of reason and realize reason was not enough. And then mm, we added on mysticism. Uh, have you experienced like maybe a, a a ricochet back to where you're now excited about the reason side of faith, or are you still full on board with the mystical? Um, well, you, one of the questions. This is a question I would ask people when it like even because I'm a I'm a pastor. You know, I've been pastoring, leading, discipling people for like a decade through our church. And a question I have for people when it comes to their own transformational journey is. How many times do you have to taste something to know it isn't good? How many times do you have to experience something to know it isn't real? Hmm. So that's a part of, that's a reflection of my overall way of guiding people where for me, the spirit is always inviting us forward and the life with God is always an invitation. It's never an obligation. So I can invite you there and I'll even go there with you if you want me to walk with you. But if you don't, that's okay. And I'm fine with that. And I like, you can make those decisions on your own. Now, when it comes to reason and apologetics, for example, here I am, I have this wide open, spontaneous awakening. My my primary experience of God is direct knowing and transformative love and grace, like this universal affirmation of life itself, which means my life. Like that's where my beginning point is. But when I was 21, I, I actually ended up at a Bible college. And then I went to Fuller after for three years, Fuller Seminary in Pasadena. And when I went to Bible college, it was like, I no one ever taught me how to study the Bible. And it was a very conservative evangelical school. It was charismatic as well. And so I got the classical evangelical education there. It's here's the, you know, historical grammatical interpretation. Here's the apologetic stuff. Here's reason. Here's orthodox theology. Here's you know, like, I don't even know if I read that book, but like a Wayne Grudem systematic theology, like I'm getting all oh. of that, right? right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, let's not talk about Wayne Grudem. <laughs> and here, here's the funny thing is my experience is so wide open that when I went there, it, they're like, this is what it is. It's very orderly. 
and it's very systematic and it's very conceptual and it's very tight. And there was a while there where I'm like, hey, this is really cool. This is interesting. This is helpful. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I went through my own phase of, you know, the, the apologists and they were around Biola and Talbix. I was in Orange County and then this other person. And I'm like, whoa, like these guys are mind blowing. This stuff is really grounding me in when I talked about spiritual intelligence in my understanding of God and faith and reason. This is all great. Now, it also did not take me long to recognize the limitations of that. It's like what you said, Gary Allen, it's not bad, but it's limited. It's not something horrible, but it's something that's helpful on one part of the journey that is going to eventually get in the way of the next part Mm. of the journey. So what happened was like, here I am getting this really conservative, you know, classical evangelical version of the faith. And then at the end of my second year of Bible college, so funny, a student says to me, hey, you need to be careful how you talk around here. And I was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) And then they said, well, if people hear you talk like this, they might say you're emergent. If you're familiar with like the emerging church, like Brian McLaren back in the day, Tony Jones, Doug Padgett, all those guys. So this is probably 2008 or something. And I'm like, what? Again, like I didn't grow up with this stuff. I'm like, what's emergent? What's emergent? I don't know about this. And then I go and I read Tony Jones, The New Christians. And that summer I read nonstop. I was reading a book every two to three days. All these guys, everyone in my school would say, don't read. I was reading and yet it was the stuff that made the most sense to me. And that was my own first massive paradigm shift, deconstructing, moving from one stage of faith to the other. If you're familiar with spiral dynamics from blue to orange or green from, or James Fowler, the pastor from stage three to stage four and five. And that was my summer of a radical reorientation. So I did do the, it was like, you have to know the rules to know how to break them creatively. And that's what Bible college was for me. I was like, oh, this is what people think. I would love to just loop back to the to the kind of practical, mystical practices that today or that you would promote for people to to dive in. What would what, what would some mm. of those tangibles be? Mm. Yeah. A- any practice that aligns your mind, body, and heart in 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 oneness and grounds you in love. You need to do that and it needs to become a consistent practice you return to. So like the more you consciously experience the river intentionally in a specific space, the more you will trust that river organically in all space. When you say river, what do you mean? I mean, river is, you know, the unified field, that open space to actually experience grace for yourself and love and to feel grounded in spirit where it's, this is not about what I believe about God. This is this actual conscious experience of my true self and of God, which are experienced basically, you know, as synonyms for me. So any practice that allows you to be present, that allows you to actually take a deep breath where you can be like, hey, we're okay here. Yeah. Remember, before anything else, you already have a name. Before anything else, you're already seen. Before anything else, the conclusion's been given. But on a practical level, centering prayer, Lexio Divina, you know, that sacred reading of text, which is very yeah. contemplative way, of re- which for me, actually, I still do at times a form of Lexio Divina as a practice, but I don't do it with the Bible. I actually do it with mystics. So I will do Alexio Divina by myself, which means when I'm after a time of, I use the same practice of breath. Every time I go into silence, I do the same practice of breath to start. I can tell you what it is if you're interested. I don't know if people care about technical stuff, but it takes about eight minutes. And then I'm like, I'm present. I'm here. Okay. So um, Lexio Divina, prayer of examine to look back at your day, um, mm-hmm. you know, walking, med- I think walking or movement, like more movement oriented meditation is helpful for people, especially who know if they go in silence, their monkey mind is really, really strong and their body wants to move. Then I think the moving meditation helps people with certain personalities actually be more present because the physical activity occupies some of the space for them. But The idea of the river is, you know, whether it's Richard Rohr or Buddhist talking about how spiritual practices are all fingers pointing to the moon, then it's like, dude, you could hang upside down in moon boots for all I care. You could do any intentional act 
that plants your feet on the ground of grace opens you up and leads you to a greater sense of awakening in the spirit. And at one point in my life, I used to do my practice of breath and listen to Gregorian chants in my headphones in silence for whatever those reasons were. It helped. I feel like it helped ground me in a greater tradition. It helped ground me in something larger. And I don't do that anymore, but I used to. And the point is what is giving you access to the river? Those are some practical things. And everybody's unique. That's a part of the fun part of what's helpful for me might not be helpful for the next person, but whatever helps us with that real union and sense of identity in God, then that's something we have to keep returning to over and over. Hmm. Okay. So, so I meditate, I I don't meditate every day, um, but you know, I've, I've incorporated that as a part of a spiritual practice for me. Um, My wife is a member of a vowed religious order and, um, she meditates and prays uh, some type of prayer, whether it be the Jesus prayer or Lectio or some of their more liturgical aspects, three times a day. So she's mm. up uh, before the sun rises doing prayer. She pauses during the day and, and even at night. And when we first got started in this journey of incorporating more mystical, meditative, contemplative um, expressions of faith, I was waiting on that moment, that that mystical moment that God showed up. And <laughs> like, I'll, I'll just be honest, because I, I think people need to understand the expectations. It's mostly completely boring, yeah, to, at least for me. It, it has mostly been, you know, 20 minutes of sitting in silence to where the first 15 minutes, I'm just trying to get that monkey mind to slow down. Mm -hmm. And then maybe just maybe I've got 30 seconds of like, but uh, can you talk about that? I mean, maybe you've (laughs) tapped into that river and that experience, but I just feel like that a lot of people jump into mysticism, they jump into meditation, and they think, all right, a weekend, I'm going to have some divine (laughs) experience happen, the heavens are going to open, I'm going to see the face of God. And, you know, Mm. for the the most part, it's just doing, it's creating the discipline of carving out the time Mm. for God to show up, or at least for you to recognize that God is already there in the first place. But Mm. it may not be this magical light show. Uh, Mm. Has that been true for you as well? Yeah, people, that's, that's, no, that's a good point. And that's actually, you know, as a pastor, that's a very pastoral thing to offer people because you can anticipate frustration with like genuine people who want to commit to a different kind of a path being frustrated. And I think that's very real. So I appreciate that. Here's one thing we have to remember. Jesus is not magic. You know, I think some worship experiences can perhaps create an atmosphere to lead you to believe that this is all magic. And if you just grit your teeth and try hard enough and will it or pray louder or cry harder or raise your hands higher, that somehow you have, you can like, create the magical incantation that's going to do something unique or strange or whatever, you know, and Mm -hmm. that is not very interesting to me. And I don't find that very helpful. I can find that to become a hindrance in many ways of this very event based Christianity. But I had a conversation with someone in my church years ago and who knows what we're talking about. But when I talked to this person, I said, hey, I said, if you commit to silence 20, you know, let's say four times a week, 20 minute sits, you know, so you're doing that's 80 minutes a week and you do that for five years, you'll start to get it. Hmm. Five years, because what happens? Your mind is all over the place. You are. I just breathe. I tried to take two deep breaths and all I'm, I'm wondering about my to-do list. I need to write after this. I took my third deep breath. I'm like, man, my kid, we need to talk about that. My fourth deep breath. I'm now concerned or thinking about now I'm imagining myself on the podcast. I want to be in, in the future. And I'm answering a question. No one ever asked me before or whatever. Right. And that is a part of the way is discovering all of the obstacles that are in the way and the the obstacles will actually become they're not in the way they're a part of the way so yes it isn't i have had you know that spontaneous awakening moment with god i have had these profound 
felt experiences. But most of the time, if you were to ask me, well, what's happening? What do you do? If you were to see me in science and said, Kevin, what are you doing? I would say nothing. I agree. I also would just say there's, there's a, from my experience and from some of the reading that I've done, it, it feels a little bit more complex. I think that that silence and that that time away is very important. One of my one of my favorite um, mystics is Saint Teresa of Avila. Have you have you mm. done much reading of hers? I'm familiar. I'm by by no means an expert on her, but I'm familiar with her as a part of the perennial tradition. Yeah one of one of my favorite quotes of hers. It, I'm just going to read it. it. Says contemplative prayer, in my opinion, is nothing other than a close sharing between friends. Mm. It means frequently taking time to be alone with him whom know him whom we know love us. And mm-hmm. so there's this, there's this kind of, um, there's the simplicity to time alone. And, you know, you say five years of, of silence and then you'll, but there's this other side to it, which is this like uniting of friends. And I think that's the part that isn't necessarily taught or explained. And so mm-hmm. I guess I would ask, how would you explain that side? Cause the like the mindfulness, the meditation, the silence feels like very known things to our to the world and and I would say is like very is trending currently but how would you explain the other side of mysticism which is like sitting with a friend you can't see for me the way I was describing it and the way you're describing it is the same that's mm-hmm. the same experience for me you know so to be in silence yes but the silence is an actual trusting and falling into love more the silence mm-hmm. is, you know, when Henry Nouwen says prayer is listening to God say good things about you, you know, in a similar vein of what you're talking about, the silence is relational. The silence is union. There was a cliff in Orange County I used to sit on all the time. And when I sit there in silence, what I experience, not just believe conceptually, but experience in a heart, mind, body aligned, sort of visceral felt way is the silence is me experiencing God as lover, as father, you can use whatever metaphors are helpful for you. Hmm. God as a lover saying yes to me as the beloved. It's a universal yes over my life. So silence is relational. And I think the complex part and the idea of like uniting as friends is how do you actually trust that, see that, know that while you're in the moment? Because that's a part where I think people could just be like, well, I'm just sitting in silence. So how do you sit long enough? What do you, this is a little bit of a spoiler. It's not extremely public, but I have a second book coming out in January called The Joy of Letting Go. Hmm. And one of those chapters is, you know, a chapter about experiencing God and receiving love, which for me are the same thing. And I talk about it that I'm like, well, what do we have to let go of to do that? There are things within us that are actually getting in the way of our ability to trust and experience what you said, Kelly, of the uniting of friends. It's not enough to believe that. Silence is a time where you know and touch and taste and feel and start to become that for yourself. You know, and that's the complex part, I think, at times for people is, how do you trust that? What is that like? How do I actually start to recoil, relax, and start to have that grounded sense of self in that? Anytime I talk with mystics or spiritual directors as it relates to this kind of topic, the T word comes up, transformation. Hmm. Um, the, the idea that most of us, as I referenced earlier, grew up in a belief-based Christianity and beliefs are not transformative. Uh, we <laughs> said this two podcasts ago. You can believe all the right things and still be in bondage. You can believe all the right th- things and still be an absolute monster of a person. <laughs> so once we move past belief and we realize that just thinking the right things about Jesus does not make us like Jesus, then there's this opening toward, okay, well, how do I become transformed? How do I become more like Christ? And every spiritual director within this realm has said that mysticism is the pathway toward transformation, that at least mysticism is an invitation to be transformed. So, how do how would you describe how this mystical path indeed facilitates human transformation? Mm. Yeah, when I even talk about that initial 
experience I had of Christ, of God, of spirit, grace, love. Like I can use all those things interchangeably. And, you know, so I'm 18. I, I'm like, eat a bunch of mushrooms. I'm like, I'm going to die. Like someone put me in a, in a straight jacket. Then I'm like, no, go to my girlfriend's house with my friend. Um, who's now my wife, by the way. And that was when I had that first direct, immediately transformative experience of God. And so well, after that happens, it's like four in the morning now, because my wife and I lived in different parts of Los Angeles County. And uh, I'm like, well, I got to get home still. It's four in the morning. So I called my parents to come pick me up, which is funny when you think about it, there's a quote, like after the ecstasy, the laundry. And I'm like, well, after the awakening, I still got to get home somehow. <laughs> and I remember as my parents were driving me and my friend home, I was, when I was driving home, I had this thought. I said, it's not so much that I'm thinking different thoughts about life, although I am, but it isn't primarily that I'm thinking different thoughts. I said, it's actually the foundational I that is doing the thinking has been transformed and is completely different. That is a difference between translating the world differently through beliefs, which like you said, don't transform you at a radical root level. They just change how you see yourself in the world, which is healthy and it's helpful in early stages of faith. But transformation of consciousness is the very transformation, reorientation of the very sense of I that is doing the thinking, that is having the emotions or that is having the beliefs. So oftentimes what we seek from inspiration is only going to be found through transformations, through transformation. And this is why like this is first and second half of life spirituality, where the first half of life, it's about, it's about the beliefs of the self. And the second half of life, it's about the death of the very self who is doing the believing and the clinging the whole time. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about that in a practical way, it's like, you know, you can't grit your way out of heartbreak. You can't try your way out of trauma. You can't will with your own willpower. That's why Roar, you know, since you brought him up, talks about willpower Christianity. Most people's faith is just willpower. It's like you can't will your way past anxiety. And, you know, there's a, the first movement is about encouraging, inspiring, and empowering the ego or your false self. And the second one is about questioning and recognizing and overcoming the ego. Oh my goodness, this was my question. This this is my <laughs> this is my question. I, I'm gonna jump in here. Yeah, yeah, please, I, please. I think one of the marks of mysticism and people truly transformed is the death of the ego. And mm. in like lifestyle, in spirituality, even in, you know, some mystics who have chosen to or who had, I don't think many people are doing this anymore, but living in cloisters and writing literature that has changed the future of the church. Um, how do you how do you cope with the death of ego? Absolutely. And uh, I mean, for me, most most contemporary spirituality, mindfulness, et cetera, meditation talk is offering different management techniques and uh, coping mechanisms for the ego and the false self. It's not dying to overcoming and transcending the ego or false self. It's actually strengthening and fortifying and calming down and helping manage your ego and your false self. So they're actually reinforcing the very self that I believe Jesus invited us to die to and overcome. So that's my little hot take on a lot of that. Um, which is helpful. Again, this stage is a faith, you know, people in trauma, people who are experiencing trauma, it's irresponsible to try to ask them to overcome and transcend and let go of their ego. They don't even have enough of a strong enough ego at times. It's too shaky from what they've been through. And this is for all of us to some degree. At one point in our life, you have to, you know, you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. You know, Roar says you have to have an ego to let go of an ego. Totally. And what has that, what has that experience been like for you? Like it's, it's great to talk about the theoretical you, but what has been your experience of that? Well, my experience is, you know, leading up to my first encounter with God, you know, I, when I talked about the radical inward journey of recognizing my own illusion. So at 17, I'm like, wow. Uh, Cause I was like supposed to play college basketball and I'm supposed to, I started recording music and I had that life. A lot of people wanted around me, at least who were kind of more into like the stuff I was into, not like good kids who were getting grades and going to college, but more like the other kids. But at that age, I'm like, wow everything I do is for the sake of approval. 
do I love basketball or does my ego just need what basketball does for me because it makes me a special person and makes me feel like I have some sense of value? Wow. So are you telling me everything I've given my entire life to has been for the sake of approval of others? That is not freedom. That is my life being contingent upon the responses of others. So it was my recognition of my own illusions that it, those are the needs of the ego. Those are the illusions of the ego. So for my journey was, man, you have to confront and face and feel the humiliating part of my whole life is designed to create a special name for myself through through other people seeing me. That is not the kind of life, and at that age, I'm like, that's not the kind of life that's going to lead me to freedom. That is not the kind of life that's going to bring me joy and a peace that, as we know now, surpasses understanding. And so I have that spontaneous awakening moment with God. The next year, I moved out to Hawaii. My girlfriend was already there. I wanna be with her, and I also wanted to get sober. I was getting out of my neighborhood, I'm in trouble. And so on a practical level, here's what happens. I see through all those illusions. I know my ego just needs approval. My ego wants to be special. Got it. When I moved to Hawaii, when I came here, I was invisible. Nobody knew me. Nobody cared about me. No one knew what I was into. No one knew I was that guy when I was young. And I wasn't even in the party scene because I was trying to get out of it. So I don't even have like that group of friends. Like I walked around campus. I walked on this island and I was truly invisible to people. And that right there, that experience, every single day put me in a position to ask, is me being seen by God enough? Because that's all I have. Everything my ego used for a sense of value and for a sense of stability and for a sense of self has been, I wouldn't say stripped. I voluntarily left it all. That's the difference between mystics and people who aren't. Most people only face their illusions when the suffering of life forces them to confront the reality of their own life. Mystics are the ones who can walk away from the top of something, not because it's not working, but because they know it isn't real. That is a different movement that myst- I, see- I, I believe mystics will take. And so on a practical level, it was, I no longer had. My ego couldn't just be like, oh, when I walk through this street, when I walk there, everybody knows me. No, nobody knows me. I get no validation for my ego. So every single day, it was continuously dying to those needs of the ego as they were becoming less and less powerful and turning and opening up and uncoiling and trusting the simple feeling of being me in the presence of God and trusting and knowing as I'm uniting with with a friend, like you said, Kelly, that that is enough. So my journey was I saw I saw what I was saying no to, and then I continuously said no to it as I slowly allowed that new yes in the spirit to become who I was. That's great. That was a you second. Know, that was a second sermon right there. So yeah. bringing in three or four, that was the second one right there. <laughs> totally. So on a practical level, that's that's what you're saying. Like yes, everyone wants to talk about the ego, but the death of the transcending and the overcoming. That happens in the very spaces we spend most of our lives trying to avoid. Humiliation, feeling invisible, failure, like the very spaces that are the most potential, have the most potential for our transformation, we spend our whole lives trying to avoid. That's a dilemma that we all kind of live with, you know? Yeah. You know, and I would say for me, um, the death of the ego happened primarily through failure, Um, Mm. a couple of years ago, I lost my job. I lost my status. We almost lost our home. I went through this incredible, um, mental and behavioral crisis where I needed treatment. Um, and you get to the end of everything that you have built and the Mm. end of this fake identity that has everything to do with who people think you are, uh, the car you drive, the, the neighborhood you live in. And you realize that, you know, I, all of that for one is is fake, anyways. It's it's mm-hmm. it's a false self, as as we've all heard. And yet, the only way forward is to just kick the shit out of that and 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 allow it to die. And exactly. uh, what I will say is, I I don't think the ego is bad. I think it, it was mm-hmm. necessary. It it, it you know it it allowed us to be safe. It allowed us to build an identity. But at some point, it, it does kind of like reason. It runs out of its use, and mm-hmm. the only way forward is to put the ego to death. And you know, I think that one of the things that 
when I see like the death and resurrection of Jesus, I I don't just see that as like a one-time moment in history. I really see it as an archetypal invitation to to kill your ego, to die mm-hmm. to all of the entrapments and attachments in egoic identities that that say, well, this is who I am. It's like, no, 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 you're you're something bigger than that. But the only way to move forward is to move downward. And mm. I don't know. I just I think sometimes that's why I really worry about people who have only experienced success in life because mm. you just continue to add one more layer mm. of, of your falseness to your identity, you know? Mm-hmm. So Anyways, mm-hmm. yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Gary Allen. Hey, yeah, thank you. It's it's not a story that I, you know, I, there's there's a whole lot more to that story, mm-hmm. uh, and there's only a precious few people who really know the gory details. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I mean, to me, it's just been utter and complete abject failure. Right. <laughs> that yeah. was the only way I was going to kill my ego, and and guess what? It comes back. So, Kevin, one one final uh, last formal question for for listeners who are just kind of dipping a toe into Christian mysticism, can you point them toward either some modern or ancient mystics and or writings that have made an impact in your spiritual life? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. You know, there's, when we talk about the ego, there's a way to answer this where it's like, let me make sure I come up with all of the right people historically that you're supposed to have read in order to be familiar with the mystics. And then there's the people who actually are the main ones for you. Because I see each mystic in the perennial tradition as like a unique dock that you can enter the universal river through. So even though they come from different traditions, they come from different religious traditions, they use different language, they're all in their own unique way, inviting people and helping lead people into the river. Totally. Can you can you give us some of your favorites, though? Yeah, some of my favorites, I would say, are, since I read them in 2008 for the first time, Richard Rohr, without a doubt. Right. Which is, you know, he's obviously become this massive, you know, figure now, which is amazing because I think his influence is a, a, a one I would invite. You know, I think it's so good. And to be honest, since then, I would say the biggest one of the past, I don't know, like seven-ish years, I'm not sure exactly how long, is Ken Wilber. Yeah. Okay. If people aren't familiar with Ken Wilber, I'll put it like this. You know how indifferent if you're like if you're really like evolving and you're a lifelong learner and you know you love to read and you're doing all that work, it's like every like one, two, three year period, you have like that person for you who's really forming you, who you're quoting the most, who you're who's really shaping you. And then it probably will change in a few years. And you know, for a lot of people, that's Richard Rohr. For a lot of people, that's a Rob Bell. For a lot of people, that's a, you know, Nadia Bowles-Weber or whoever they they love, you know, more and more nowadays. It could be historical people too. For the last 20 to 30 years, that person for Richard Rohr has been Ken Wilber. Mm. So think about the profundity and the depth and the unique offering this person must bring if they have been that person for Richard Rohr for 30 years. Like, I just want to, that's, that's why I say that because Roar has been quoting Ken Wilber and working with his concepts. And from my perspective, you know, really learning from him and helping translate him on such a broad level. So Ken Wilber for me is probably the ultimate one. And also a newer person who I started reading the past few years, who I just love their work and their writing is Mirabai Star. And Mirabai Star writes writes from a more interspiritual sort of lineage. You know, she doesn't identify with any one tradition. But Mirabai Star will do stuff with Roars, the Center for Action and Contemplation. But her book, Wild Mercy, Living the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women Mystics, is one of my favorite books I've read in years. Nice. Like when I read that, I was blown away because... It's I'm less like I don't get pleasantly surprised by people, especially for living mystics very often because they're hard to come by from my perspective. When I read her work, just the energetic signature of the Christ in her work, I'm like, wow, this person is special hmm. and really is offering something really special. And also from other traditions like Thich Nhat Hanh, the Buddhist who passed away recently. I love him, uh, his book, Living Buddha, Living Christ, The Heart of Buddhist Teaching, I think he wrote. I love him as well. So. All of those people are living except for Thich Nhat Hanh actually passed away within the past 
maybe six months, I think. Hmm. You know, I've, I've been reading uh, Pima Chodron from the Buddhist mm, tradition. Yeah. And, you know, I, I picked up a book the other day, uh, Christian Mysticism by Bernard McGinn. And it's a great yeah, yeah, introduction yeah. Mm-hmm. because he, he includes all kinds of writings, some primary sources from, you know, the ancient mystics and saints, these desert mothers and fathers that we've heard about, but we've never been introduced to like – um, Bernard of Clairvaux or Meister Eckhart or Julian of Norwich or John of the Cross or mm. Mictilde of Magdeburg. I mean, all these incredible names and these incredible mystics who are, I think, the the real origin of – well, origin himself. But I think the origin of the Christian mystical movement that – we just maybe were never introduced to, um, at least for those of us who grew up in evangelicalism. And I think it's, it's, it, it, yeah, it's hard. I want to give people the freedom and permission, even though they don't need it from me to like, not feel this weird obligation to have to read old mystics because just the writing itself is hard to read. Yeah. It's very, you know, it, especially if you're uninitiated, you're not studying theology. It's like you read my Eckhart, you read one of the people you just mentioned or Bernard's book where it's like a compilation. And it's like, bro, I don't know what the hell this dude's saying. You know, that's right, why it's good right. to have translators. So like, that's why the modern, you know, people are so helpful because it's the same lineage, like a Merton. They're just, it's becoming more accessible for people. Mm. Well, Kevin, this has been an incredible conversation. Your forthcoming book, The Making of a Mystic, My Journey with Mushrooms, My Life as a Pastor, and Why It's Okay for Everyone to Relax is out May 31st. Uh, For those of us who want to know more about you, where can we find you online? The best way to keep up like moment to moment would be on my Instagram at Kevin Sweeney one, because that's where I'm just like posting the most stuff in real time. I have my own podcast called The Church Needs Therapy where probably roughly half of them are interviews like this and half are me doing my own sort of teachings and thoughts on things. Yeah, the book, The Making of a Mystic, May 31st, coming out on Choir Publishing. It is not up for pre-order yet, but it hopefully will be soon. And if you follow me on Instagram, you'll know exactly when that is. And yes, I will not hesitate to say again to both of you, Kelly and Gary Allen, you know, uh, truly as a first-time writer, who, like you mentioned, Kelly, uh, who's writing about, you know, where for me, everything is about the death of the self and not the empowering and encouraging of the self into the second half of life, which Mm -hmm. is a hard sell for people, you know, but when you, when you believe that's the way you just keep saying it, because that's what you know. But yeah, as a first time writer doing that for both of you to take the time, take the risk, invite me on to this show. I do not take it for granted. I'm so grateful for both of your times. And, um, I'm going to reach out again on my second book. No pressure to have me on, but you will get one of those emails from me again. You're like, oh, it's only been four months and Kev's already hitting us up again. (laughs) Too funny. Love it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good luck with your book. I I hope that goes really well for you. Yeah. Yeah, And have a great rest of the day looking out on the Pacific Ocean there in Honolulu. Thank you so much. All right. Take care, Kevin. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you for joining us. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society and written by Kelly Lamb and Gary Allen Taylor. Music is by Faith and Foxholes. If you want more resources to help your spiritual formation and your reconstruction journey, head to sophiasociety.org for articles, online courses, our free ebook, and don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. See you next time.